Welcome to the RLG Podcast. Today we're going to be discussing Tupi. What is it? When does it occur? And how does it apply in direct payments and for individual employers? Nice, easy questions for us to look at today. I'm David Ashley and I work for Mark-Based Limited Insurance. I've worked in and around direct payments for many years in various roles. I've also been an active member of the London Self-Directed Support Forum Organising Committee for over 15 years. Hi there, my name is Rachel Halkin. I'm Head of Employment Advice Services at Independent Living Group, trading as ILG Support. I'm passionate about ensuring that individual employers receive the best support by any means possible. But for the purposes of our podcast conversations, I'm going to come at it from the legal perspective, with a special focus on employment law. The content of this podcast is for general advice only. For specific cases, always seek legal advice. Thanks, Rachel. So, Tupi, this has been easy, nice, easy one to plan for, hasn't it? We haven't had any <laughs> any difficulties at all. <laughs> How do you summarise Tupi in uh, thirty minutes? Um, let's give it a go. I think let's start with the absolute basics then. So what is Tupi about? It's about protecting rights? Absolutely. It's about protecting employees' terms and conditions of employment where there is a change of employer usually. And yet really the work hasn't gone. The work is still remaining there and it's in place. The point is to keep those workers in employment and have their terms protected. Right. Okay. So, and we know that Direct payments, individual employers, employee personal assistance because they want more choice and flexibility. So in a sense, this TUPI regulations applicable to employment law are a limiter almost to that flexibility, aren't they? They're, they're, a, they're a, a warning call that if you are going to change how you're organising the care and support you receive, factor in TUPI. You can't ignore TUPI. In theory, there is a potential that the rights of the people that you are either taking on or moving over potentially to an agency have to be considered. We can't just assume that individual employers can make always have ultimate choice. There might be a, a limiting factor as a result of TUPI regulations. Would you agree? Absolutely, I would agree with you, yes. There is this, there is a very strong set of statutory regulations originally came from the European Directive. It's been in place for a very long time. This is not a set of laws that you can simply ignore. Right. And OK, great. So it protects the rights of our employees. We know that. Uh, and it's kind of a limiter to an employer's ability to make choices about how what they do with their kind of business, for want of a better term. So what other key factors can we pull out of the cheaper regulations to as a starting point, do you think? I mean, we've talked a little bit about it. We've mentioned choice. So is Tupi, is it a choice or is this something employers can have? have any way of avoiding or is it set in stone? No, there is no sort of free choice. There is no way for an employee even to opt out of cheapy regulations. An individual cannot just simply opt out, maybe, you know, let's say by drafting something in a contract of employment. That's not possible. Um, so what we need to do is we start off by assessing whether or not there is what we call a relevant transfer, whether or not the regulations have been met, we can see that the transfer that we're proposing falls under one of the two types of relevant transfer. That's when we have to make sure that we're honouring 
all of the other provisions as to how we go about the transfer, how we go about informing and consulting, how we go about um, the actual process and the timing of it all as well is quite important. Okay, so as an advisor, then you're looking at are the conditions present for a chupi? And if so, it's a chupi, not what does the employer want to do or what does the employee want to do? It's are the conditions present for a chupi? And then how do we advise from there? And what, how does chupi apply in that situation? What will the implications be? The employee, for instance, can't say, well, I don't want to go and work over there. Can you just make me redundant? That's not that's not on the cards at that point no what we're going to be assessing is exactly as you say we take on board all of the facts we need to know all of the circumstances if there is a relevant transfer one of the major things to be aware of is that the rights here are automatic this is automatic so where we see a relevant transfer then the employee moves over automatically on the date of the transfer there is no redundancy if there is no relevant transfer or if there is a relevant transfer right and if they choose not to because you know some employees don't want to chew you over we've established that they can't opt for redundancy that's not a choice on the table but what if they do just say i don't i don't want to move over to that agency or i don't want to go and work directly for that individual what is their choice on the date of the transfer because we're talking about principles of law that actually operate automatically, what happens is that the objection has the effect of terminating their contract of employment on the date of the transfer. So I would advise everybody to make it clear to a worker who is very obviously saying, I do not want to transfer over, what the effect of that transfer would have been, as in, you know, protecting rights. One of the things, for example, I'm just going to make this point is I hear very commonly that the PA doesn't want to move over to an agency, for example, because they believe that they're going to be sent off to work for lots of different clients. And of course, that goes against the very principles of what GP is aiming to achieve. We would be protecting their original job. They wouldn't have to go and work for lots of people if they move over to the agency. That would go against the principles. So for a kickoff, I'd be saying let the PA know what the consequences of their objection or or what the transfer is. And then the consequences of their objection, which is the contract will terminate automatically on the date of the transfer. This is not a resignation. Right, so no redundancy, no resignation, no notice. It's just that's it. You object, date the transfer, goodbye. Yes, that's absolutely right. Brilliant. Okay, so um, so we know it's not a choice; it's automatic. Um, we know we have to assess whether the conditions are, are are right for a transfer to occur, and if it does, it's automatic, as I said. And an employee objects to it, then they walk away. So, what are the risks then? What are the risks to an employer? Um, of kind of getting it wrong if there is a potential chupi transfer? Very significant risks, actually. This is a set of regulations which, uh, the way I put it, is it has a set of teeth, really. It's got penalties built into it that are really, really significant. You know, some employment law has lots of rules, but not necessarily built into penalties. So, yeah, there's a couple of key things that... All employers, whether they are the incoming or the outgoing employer, need to be very well aware of. One of which 
is that if an employee is dismissed and the sole or principal reason for the dismissal is the fact of the transfer, it is an automatic unfair dismissal. So the idea with automatic unfair dismissals is there is no opportunity for the employer to then be able to say, ah yes, but it was reasonable under the circumstances. The other risk, the major one, let's say, is that an employer has the obligation to inform the workers of the transfer and also to consult with them when there are any measures. And by measures, what we mean is changes. If the employers fail to inform and consult, then the penalty is up to 13 weeks pay per employee. Really significant penalty there. Wow, 13 weeks. Yeah, that's, uh, that's impressive, impressive and something to be wary of. Um, okay, so maybe what we should do now then is look at some examples, perhaps. We've talked about Jupiter in the abstract. When exactly does it apply? We, we, we'll bring it back down to our, our client group, individual employers. If, if, I, if I think of a situation, okay, so somebody on direct payments um, is no longer going to manage their direct payment themselves. The, Local authority or the funding body are going to take hold of that care package. Um, they're going to stop the direct payment and they're going to put in a contracted care agency. Um, does Tupi apply? Okay, in that particular case, I'm going to argue it probably doesn't apply. And this is really tricky because <laughs> we've got a couple of different types of relevant transfer that we're, we're going to be conscious of. Shall I break that down for you? Yes. We've got a business transfer, which essentially is when we have a collection of assets. We've got an economic entity, assets that come together that essentially have either as the core purpose or at least ancillary, they've got this economic objective. Uh, That's the reason that they've been collected in the first place. I'm trying to keep it simple. And that after the transfer, it retains its identity. So that collection of assets. And of course, when we're talking about PAs, we're thinking about a grouping of workers. So we've got this economic, economic entity transfer. That's transfer, relevant transfer number one. Relevant transfer number two is what we call the service provision change. <clears throat> that's where we've got an organized grouping of employees who post-transfer, they are retaining the same activities those activities remain fundamentally the same okay and we're talking about activities that are expected to be of a long-term duration not something that's just you know short service only so those two types of transfer each have their own rules and principles but I think when we've got a, a group of workers who work for a direct payment employer it would be difficult to argue that there was an economic objective to what these workers are doing. They're simply providing the care services. So, so that's business transfer out the window, let's say. Service provision change requires the client to remain the same, the customer, the purchaser of the services, let's say. Now, of course, if we're going from a direct payment employer out to commission service, so the local authority or the clinical commissioning group are paying for the service thereafter, then arguably the client has fundamentally altered. So I would say in that situation that you've just put to me, neither one of those trans- relevant transfers apply and therefore no tupi. Right, okay, brilliant. So even though there's an organised grouping of employees, 
doing an activity that will fundamentally be quite similar or the same. Because the client changes, we're saying it's not a service provision change. And we're also saying it's not a business or economic transfer because there's no, what did we say? There's, there is a collection of assets or what was the reason yeah, for it not being an be economic? an economic objective, an economic right. entity who has an economic objective at the heart of what they do. Right, brilliant. Okay, so in that scenario, then we're saying no Tupi, the client changes and there's no uh, economic objective. So I guess what we learn from the way you approach that question is really helpful in that when we ask then, is, does Tupi apply? You are then, the first thing you're doing is looking at the two ways in which it could apply. So service provision change or economic transfer. And that's, is that your starting point every time then, Rachel, as an advisor? Every time. Every time. Right. This is good. So does Tupi apply? And the first thing we do is look at the two ways it can and we work out whether it fits into one of those. Right. Okay, then, Rachel. So I'll ask you the next question then. What if we reverse it and an individual who previously had commissioned care decides they don't like the way the agency works, but they like the carers that they've been introduced to and they're going to employ them directly and they've asked for a direct payment. They get the direct payment from the funding body. They want to employ the carers directly. Does Tupi apply? Okay, so in this particular case, we might well immediately look at a service provision change because we're thinking that we're insourcing the work. Previously, it's been outsourced, we're insourcing it, there's a change, a provider. However, I think it's likely that a service provision change isn't likely to apply for one reason, because we know that in order for a service provision change to happen, we've got to have an organised grouping of employees where their principal purpose is to focus on that service. And of course, many, many carers, PAs who are working for agencies are working for lots of different clients, not just this particular uh, direct payment recipient. The second reason is because one of the requirements for a service provision change is that the client must remain the same. Now, at least we know the way direct payments operates in England is that the Care Act provides that when a direct payment is given by a local authority, their duty to continue to provide the care effectively suspends. They're given a cash payment, they're given it over to the citizen who then takes responsibility for their own care. That's the the whole concept of the thing. So in that case, they're not working as an agent for the uh, local authority at all. They're actually managing this care on their own behalf. So what's happening then is that the person who is purchasing the services, the client, the purchaser, the customer, is changing. We're going from commissioned services to somebody who is buying in their own services. The client has changed. So service provision change arguably doesn't apply. However, we've got that that other type of relevant transfer. We've got a business transfer. So for a business transfer to occur, we've got to have an economic entity. So a collection of assets who have an objective, an economic objective, something that essentially is about creating um, wealth, profit, something that comes together in order to achieve an economic goal, let's say. Now, if you've got a collection of PAs who are working for an agency, that agency is going to earn a profit. Arguably, there is some level of economic objective involved in the reason that that asset group has been collected in the first place. 
However, what we'd need to do is explore in more detail whether or not that relevant transfer applies. So we'd need to consider whether or not the intention is when the direct payment kicks in, do we intend to retain the identity of that group? So let's say we've got um, a group of PAs who were put together specially at the agency to provide for this service, but actually direct payment employer only wants to take on half of them. They're not interested in taking on the whole group of them. Then there's an argument that it does, it no longer retains its identity post-transfer. So in other words, the relevant transfer falls away, no TUPI applies. So we've really got to explore the facts to determine whether or not it occurs. Right, brilliant. Thanks, Rachel. So that, that's interesting. So again, this assessment is um, all important. And it's, I think the message is coming across loud and clear. Be wary of making kind of snap judgments of when, whether or not GP applies. Would you agree? Absolutely. Yeah, it's so, so important. And of course, I think it's also worth mentioning that we've, we've got a lot of, um, you know, confusing case law, things that perhaps conflict, contradict each other. And as I said at the beginning, we're also trying to operate within the framework of, of the care sector, um, which also brings with it lots of, of statutory rules. Um, so that can add some level of confusion as well, of course. But just to highlight this question as to the client, I think that's an interesting one to reflect on, whether or not the client remains the same. We did have a case back in 2014, the case of Jinx and London Borough of Havering, that put less emphasis on who is contracting with the employee or who is contracting with the client. They put less emphasis on that and said it's really the question as to who the client is under the regulations is a question of fact and not law. So for some time, there was an understanding that, well, you know, to some degree, that service user is always the one receiving the care, whether it's commissioned by the local authority or whether it's purchased by themselves on a direct payment. They're always the beneficiary of that service. Is it arguable that they always remain the client or could it even be argued that the local authority retain that control? You know, let's be honest, whilst a direct payment is provided, the local authority doesn't relinquish all control, let's say, or, or, you know, monitoring of how that money has been spent. They'll still be doing the reviews. They'll still be ensuring that the, uh, that, that service user is safeguarded. So they never completely relinquish all obligations to that citizen who requires support by the state. Um, so Jinx, it is possible. I think we perhaps might have been too broadly interpreting at the time, but it is possible that as case law develops, we'll see that there is um, a move away from this just purely contractual understanding as to who exactly is the client. In addition to that, we're also aware of the first instance case that sort of lifted the veil, let's say, that actually explored what's the reason we're going from a commission service to a direct payment. Is the reason genuinely because that's what the citizen wants, that they're engaging in what direct payments is all about, you know, that autonomy and the freedom and the right of choice? Or is it actually an economic decision on the part of the local authority to cut costs? And if an employment tribunal thinks that that's the case, it is quite likely that they will say the direct payment is a sham and they will honour the employment rights of the workers. Right. Wow. So the, just a couple of things there, just to point out, I guess, when you say first instance case, um, can you just explain what you mean by that? Yeah. 
A first instance case is basically the lowest level of, a, uh, of the tribunal system, at least. We're talking about the employment tribunals. So anything that goes above that, when it goes to appeal, it would go to the Employment Appeals Tribunal, and then it goes up to the Court of Appeal and the Supreme Court eventually. The higher level courts bring a precedent value with them. So we know absolutely that any principles of law that come from the decisions in the higher level cases, we can apply them to cases moving forward. First instance cases give us a steer as to how an employment tribunal may look at it, but don't necessarily have that strength of, you know, the precedent value for cases that have gone before the one we're tackling now. Right. Excellent. Thank you. So harder to harder to get hold of as well and find, uh, uh, as I've discovered. So employment tribunal cases that we can get hold of will give us a steer. If it goes to appeal, we have a little bit more confidence in what in what we're seeing in what, what the appeal tribunal's telling us. Um, and likewise, if it if it's, um, goes beyond that, um, what I'm taking from it is a degree, not subjectivity, but I think what was interesting to me about. The first instance case you've just discussed is that there is a that, 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 that sort of suggests that the motivation behind the transfer is all important, which I think is a good thing on broadly. I would I, I'm glad that that is the case, but it does take us um, it does make your job more difficult if you're trying to support people to decide whether a situation whether Tupi applies to a situation or not. To understand, it's one thing to understand the facts of what is happening and what you are being told. It's quite another to understand what the true mo- motivation underlying that change is. And I know that funding bodies work in, um, you know, wonderful ways, um, wild and wonderful ways, and that budgets are tight and decisions are made around commissioning that will impact individuals, direct payment recipients or not, anyone in receipt of care services. Um, and yeah, that strikes me as a, a, a complicated dimension to apply this, this kind of what is the genuine motivation between, uh, behind things happening. But I guess that's the reality. And I'm pleased, at, similarly to other areas we've looked at in these podcasts, you know, if you think of employment status, what, what is the true motivation? What is the genuine contract as it plays out? Not what's written down, not what we're always being told. But I guess that's what keeps you guys on your toes and why people should always contact RG Support for advice around any potential Tupi situation. Most definitely. It is, it is a great, great challenge. And, and you know, the, one of the things that makes it particularly difficult for our advisors is I cannot tell you how many people call us because they've been told to call us. And they don't even recognise that they are employers. And that's worrying, of course, because what we've been talking about in these podcasts is is a significant body of, you know, legal regulation that applies to an employer. If the, the, you know, care sector approach to applying direct payments hasn't fully explained to this individual receiving the fund um, that they are an employer and what this means, that can cause them problems. So yes, it's really important for us to understand motivations in any query that comes to us. Very, very important. And we need to make it absolutely clear that whilst we are quite happy to talk to introducers, to support organisations, to anybody who is supporting a citizen who's in receipt of a direct payment, we've got to be wary of, of ensuring that 
the consequences of that advice is fully understood by our policyholder as well, by the employer. Brilliant. Thanks, Rachel. Okay, Rachel. So when in scenarios then when Tubi doesn't apply, for example, the needs have changed, somebody's going into residential care, they no longer need to employ the PAs. What then, if if you look at it, Tupi doesn't apply, what happens then? Okay, so Tupi isn't happening perhaps through lots of different reasons. Maybe they've gone to full-time residential care, so the way the care is being provided fundamentally alters, or they're going out to agency because they now need nursing support rather than PA support. There's lots of reasons that they're fundamentally the service is going to alter and Tupi won't apply. In those cases then, what that means is that the current employer, our direct payment employer, still has those staff but no longer has a need for them. The service is actually ceasing as far as they are concerned, so that results in a redundancy scenario. Right, okay, so redundancy will apply, the job ceases to exist as as it was. Um, Okay, so... I guess before we wrap this up, then, I think it's important that we do look at the process when it does occur, though. What, what are the practical steps an employer might have to follow? What would they be expected to do? Um, if you make an assessment, you decide a transfer is applicable. Um, what are the practical steps an employer would be expected to take? What should they be ready to do? Okay, so one of the first things that needs to be done is the transfer or that's the outgoing employer is under an obligation to exchange what we call the ELI, the Employee Liability Information. And that's a list of all sorts of data for each employee who's transferring that includes things like their rates of pay, whether or not they've got a disciplinary record, pension rights, their age, everything that helps that new employer determine what their liabilities are. Because, of course, What we haven't discussed in in this session so far is is what transfers. And the key is that, well, everything, really, all of the rights and liabilities of the original employer transfer over. So even things like an outstanding disciplinary record is very important because the new employer can pick it up. So we've got to exchange the employee liability information. That's got to be done as soon as possible. And in very good time prior to the transfer dates. Now, this is something else to stress. We often get calls, when's the transfer happening? Oh, next week. It's not enough time. The ELI has got to be exchanged with sufficient time for the new employer to truly understand what their their liabilities are and achieve the next step, which is informing and consulting. So informing, what we mean is we are notifying the employees of their uh, transfer and what that means to them, what the social and economic implications of that are. And we consult with them if there are measures to be considered. So that's changes. If we're looking, it could be anything from a location change, from the way the work is organised, whatever it may be. Uh, But note that any measures have got to have an ETO defence. That's an economic, technical or an organisational defence. I think to go into the ins and outs of what an ETO defence is could perhaps be discussed in a future podcast. Um, So certainly I would say for now, make sure that you're taking advice. If there are any changes that you want to implement, you're not sure if you can get away with it, give us a call. Great. So when we're thinking about 
consulting. And this is the third real practical step that I need to highlight to you is that this need to consult on any measures actually sits with the employer of the affected employees. So that could be either one. If there was some sort of a merger and, for example, the new employer is going to have a scenario where their staff are are affected, then they've got to speak to their staff about it, consult with them. And then the outgoing employer also has to consult with their own staff. Now, very often the two will come together and we would encourage that to be the case. But officially, the obligation does sit with the current employer of the affected staff. Something else majorly important to note is that if you have an employer who has under 10 staff, so they're considered to be a micro-employer, then they can consult with affected staff directly, with each individual directly, that's fine. Anything, any employer who has more than 10 staff is under an obligation to consult with an approved representative of the employees an appropriate representative. So that means that you may well have to hold an election to determine who is to be the representative of the employees and consult with them. So that's more steps that are necessary in order to get through this informing and consulting process properly. And if we, if you remember, we discussed earlier that the failure to inform and consult adequately can result in up to 13 weeks pay as the penalty. So it's very, very important that time is given to this whole process. Great. Thanks, Rachel. So um, hopefully we provided a decent overview of Tupi and how it applies to individual employers, the process, things to look out for. As always, make sure you're getting in touch with RLG support for advice. It's a complicated procedure, um, even working out whether it applies in the first place in many cases. Um, We will revisit Tupi in future episodes of this podcast. There's so much more to say. Um, Next time, we're going to be talking about SOSR, some other substantial reason for dismissal. So do look out for that one. Um, But that's all from me. So thanks very much. Goodbye. Goodbye from me. The content of this podcast is for general advice only. For specific cases, always seek legal advice.